The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Start again? Looks so. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't like to do formal breaks because things never come back together in the same way. Uh, in the world that I teach in, we would say the container is broken and it doesn't come back together. Uh, but if people need to get up and um, go take a break, I'm used to that. Um, but I'm also used to long sitting sessions and long teaching sessions. That to me is just not, surpri- not a surprising thing to happen, that there would be a long sitting session and or a long teaching session. Um, I'm very familiar with that. So we didn't quite get finished with the um, creation phase this morning. I've got maybe half a page of notes. Um, Pretty much I've said uh, everything that I need to say. So Utpati, or creation phase, is becoming the deity. Uh, Overcome mistaken identity by visualize oneself as a fully enlightened being. Oh, and we talked about Yidams having many appearances. We talked about visualization isn't just making things up that aren't there. Visualization is trying to see more accurately rather than just conventionally into uh, the sacredness of the world of our experience. So I'm going to read, um, there is a process for building up a visualization. It's pretty much the same. in all liturgies. Um, This is especially in a Nyingma liturgy, but I like this sequence very much, so I'm going to uh, take us through how you build up a visualization, get to the fully built-up visualization, and then what you do for a while. So, um, because of interdependence, and because interdependence is the main proof of emptiness, Everything that appears arises out of emptiness. And that, of course, is how a visualization appears. It's a, it's a um, way of an appearance, a sacred appearance, arising out of emptiness. So um, <clears throat> it begins with the Sanskrit mantra, Om Svabhava Shudo Shabhava, Om Svabhava Shudo Ham. Um, and what that means is uh, Om. Uh, everything has the self-nature of purity, and so do I. Everything is innately pure, and so am I. And then we get the description. Um, I think this is very beautiful language. All phenomena of samsara and nirvana, from the moment they appear, are empty by nature, Within their natural expression, like a moon reflected in water, rests the emptiness nature. So whatever appears uh, is empty by nature, and within whatever appears, like moon reflected in water, rests emptiness. So we train ourselves to look at things and see form and emptiness simultaneously. It takes a while, um, takes a lot of reflection but it it does happen. So within their natural expression, like a moon reflected in water, rests the emptiness nature. Unfettered since it is bound by none, there is no action of binding. Luminous emptiness abides as space, 
From this expanse fully pervades all illuminating great compassion. So the first thing that manifests out of emptiness is all illuminating great compassion. Indivisible emptiness and compassion. Emptiness and compassion are always indivisible. Um, you really don't get one without the other. Uh, so from this expanse fully pervades all illuminating great compassion. The indivisible emptiness and compassion is self-arisen rigpa as the syllable D. Um, self-arisen rigpa. Rigpa is... Um, Rigpa is not intellectual mind, but a mind as it is. So self-arisen Rigpa arises as a syllable D. And this is something you have to get used to in Vajrayana practice. Syllables are very important. And there's empty, the sequence goes from emptiness, there is compassion. From compassion arises what's called a seed syllable. Uh, arises, uh, f- self-arisen rigpa is the syllable D. Rays of light radiate from D and accomplish the two benefits. So the two benefits are for self and other. And um, rays of the D, you visualize the D, rays of light radiate from the D. You could think of it as five colored, so usually five colored rays of light. Uh, in the five primary colors, which are uh, green, blue, red, white, and yellow. So these five colored rays of light emanate out and gather back, and as they gather back, they accomplish the two benefits (coughs) of self and other. And then the syllable turns into the yidam. That's just a standard sequence. From emptiness arises from compassion, out of compassion arises the syllable, the seed syllable, which is like the, um, I don't know, maybe the title of the deity. And then out of the syllable arises the deity in full. So uh, accomplishes the two benefits. From this on a lion throne of fearlessness on a lotus and moon seats. So having a seat and a lotus and a moon seat, is, that's very, very common arises intrinsic awareness as the noble and supreme Manjushri. Manjushri is the bodhisattva who personifies personifies wisdom. And then you get the description of the deity, so you gradually build up this visualization. Arises intrinsic awareness as the noble and supreme Manjushri, the color of saffron and youthful. He's always yellow. They're different colors. Each one has its own distinct color. Um, Holding in his two hands a sword and an utpala. The sword is in the right hand like this. It's the sword that cuts ignorance. You know, people sometimes say, why do you have swords? They're wrathful. They're weapons of war. No, they're cutting ignorance. And an utpala... I'm not even sure what an Utpala is here in this case. With a text of 100,000 stanzas, that's an important Buddhist text. He's the Bodhisattva of wisdom. So he holds the sword of wisdom, which cuts ignorance, and he's holding an important text. 
with a text of a hundred thousand stanzas. His hair is ornamented with the crown of the five families, in that you'll often see a crown that has five prongs in it for the five enlightened wisdoms, because the five negative emotions transmute to the five enlightened wisdoms if you don't reject them and know how to work with them. Uh, his hair is ornamented with the crown of the five families, resplendent with the major and minor marks of Buddhahood, um, the 32 marks of the perfect person. <clears throat> In old texts, nothing particularly Vajrayana about that. Adorned with the Sambhogakaya ornaments, those are uh, Sambhogakaya ornaments, are the ornaments of Mahayana deities. They're um, scarves and jewelry and uh, multicolored pants. And, um, you know, Buddhas are always portrayed in monastic garb and monastic robes. Bodhisattvas are always portrayed in rich lay clothing. That's just to affirm both the monastic and the lay lifestyle. Adorned with the Sambhogakaya ornaments, he is surrounded by an ocean-like assembly of victorious ones. So they always have retinues. In the expanse of the luminous light rays in, the, in his heart is the Janana Sattva, one shown in size. That's a small duplicate version of him. If the full body is in the form of Manjushri, and there's a form of Manjushri in the heart. And with whom on a moon disk is the syllable D, so the syllable very, very tiny in the, um, in the, um, within whom on a moon disk is the syllable D, encircled by the sacred mantra garland. So then the uh, mantra garland emanates from the seed syllable. Mantra garlands circle around the main, so they circle, they're circling around you. And um, this one is going to be circling up. This one's circling clockwise. It depends on whether the deity is wrathful or peaceful. So now the practice, the practice is fully on. You've got the visualization fully set up. And the mantra has started to be there. And so the practice is to maintain the visualization, to be in meditation posture, to maintain the posture and recite the mantra. So body, speech, and mind are fully occupied in practice. Body is fully occupied in posture and previously has been fully occupied in doing mudras. There's a very elaborate language of hand gestures in Vajrayana. And they can be very, very beautiful. Um, I'll do one set of mantras. I'll put this down so you can see me better. This is a set of offering mudras. And you, these are not so easy to do. You bring the hands together. These are offering mudras. So this symbolizes making a water offering. When you have a Vajrayana shrine, you have seven offering bowls on it. And that all comes from Hindu ritual. These are the same things you would offer an honored guest in Indian rituals of hospitality. 
they, the honored guests comes and you offer them water for bathing. This is a pitcher and you're pouring water out of it. This is a pitcher and you're pouring water out of it. And then you make the offering by snapping the fingers and then you do the pecor again. And the next offering is water for washing the feet. You know, your guests have worn sandals. The road has been dusty. So then you offer them the foot washing water. Then you do the this ritual again. And then next you offer your guest flowers. So this is the gesture for offering flowers. And when you see a Vajrayana shrine, there will be representatives of these seven things along the front of the shrine. And then you, you offer the flowers. You do this again. And then you offer your guest candles or lights. See how obvious the sign language is? Offer the candles. Then you do it again. And then next you offer them incense. So this is a ball of incense. Offer that. Then you do this again. And then you offer perfumed water. It's like a bottle of perfume then you offer your guests food, a plate of food and then you offer them music and those are the seven main outer offerings now that offering sequence can be repeated many many times in a practice so that's one way of fully occupying body in practice fully occupying mind in maintaining the visualization yourself as saffron with the utpala the sword and the utpala the text of a hundred stanzas with a very miniature version in your heart center with the mantra garland circling, but you usually actually visualize the mantra garland circling around you. And speech is occupied in reciting the mantra. Or if you're not reciting mantra, if you're doing liturgy, it's occupied in reciting liturgy. Now, if you're reciting liturgy, you're often doing mudras at the same time. So there's there's a lot to do. (coughs) Mantra is Om Arapatsana Di, Om Arapatsana Di, Om Arapatsana Di. I was going to bring a mala along. I forgot to bring a mala along. You'd be holding the mala in your left hand, and you pull up one bead for each recitation of the mantra. That's how you keep track. Oh, so Omar Patsana D, Omar Patsana D, Omar Patsana D, Omar Patsana D, Omar So you do that for a while, and sometimes the group leader will say how long, other times you will just decide this is enough. And then the Utpati session is at an end, but before we end the Utpati session, I said I wanted to talk about emanating and gathering while doing visualization and mantra recitations. If you look at Tibetan paintings, if you look at them carefully, there are often, from the deity, from the body of the deity, there are often very tiny, squiggly lines going out from the body of the deity towards either a halo or um, a shape that's sort of like this. And that's emanating and gathering which I said, you know, this isn't discursive. There's nothing going on. If anything is going on, 
while you recite the mantra, sometimes you do what emanating and gathering practice, which means as the rays go out from your body, as the light rays go out, then the light rays can go... Uh, this is very much like text I was just reading uh, about doing, doing four immeasurables practice and pervading a whole quarter with your meta energy or co- pervading the whole sphere. It's the same thing. You, you are, the rays are going out from your body and you can send out, uh, you can send the light rays out to all of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas in the whole universe. And then the light comes back from them. The light that comes back from them brings blessings to you. So you've basically sent out like a request, and then you bring back to yourself blessings. Then you can send light out again as blessings to all sentient beings. Because you've now been blessed, you can send the blessings out. You send the blessings out to all sentient beings. They can be transformed uh, from their confusion is overcome, and then the light gathers back. And, you know, if you keep that going for quite a while, it's, it's, uh, it starts to get in with the rhythm of your heart, and it becomes quite, quite nice. So that's um, visualization practice, becoming a yidam, the visualization practice of becoming a yidam, why one wants to become a yidam. It's a fast track uh, to take on the qualities and characteristics and appearance of an enlightened being rather than your crummy, overweight self. Now, does it work? Well, I think insofar as any meditation works, it works. Um, it's all mind training. It's all overcoming mistaken identity. And, you know, to just sit and think, well, I'm not really confused, I'm actually enlightened, that probably isn't going to get us very far. It's probably not going to work. So this is like, a, it's been said, you know, it's a trick. It's a trick. We, we trick ourselves into having a different attitude and opinion about ourselves by uh, becoming very, very familiar with these sessions. And, um, you know, so familiar that the boundary of yourself is a very limited... Uh, confused, enlightened being, unenlightened being, starts. it just starts to leave. So we come to the end of the mantra session, and at the end of the mantra session, because as long as we're doing the practice, we recite the mantra, at a certain point, it's time to quit. And when it's time to quit, for whatever reason it's time to quit, you've got enough numbers, you have to go on kitchen rota, <laughs> um, the leader says, this is it, the, then you have to undo the visualization. You have to undo the whole thing and dissolve it all back into emptiness because you don't want to leave thinking this thing I've built up is real. This is mind. This is mind's projection. This is a skillful means. This is mind's projection. You don't want to just get up and run out not forgetting to dissolve everything back into emptiness. Because after all, emptiness is closer, much closer to the state of how things are than is form. Even though form is emptiness and emptiness is form, nevertheless, um, you know, 
we have to get to them. The form part is easy for most people to get. Most people can see forms and they think forms are real and they don't have any doubts about that. Uh, but to get to the emptiness part, that's a lot harder. That's what makes Buddhism hard. Getting egolessness and emptiness, which are the same thing, is not all that easy. So, <clears throat> there's, a, there's a long Sampanakrama text in this sadhana that I like very much, so I'm going to read it. It's much longer than they usually are. But what it says, this is very important, the essence of all deities thus generated, we've just generated this whole visualization, the essence of all deities thus generated is one's own awareness. In other words, they aren't out there. They don't exist independently. It is one's own awareness which arises in unceasing radiance. Whatever arises from Dharmadhatu is a display without acceptance or rejection, negation or affirmation, hope or fear, like waves of the ocean. That's part that I like very much, that it's all uh, is unceasing radiance uh, as a display without acceptance or rejection. Everything is a display that we neither accept nor reject. Uh, no negation or affirmation. And this is where I get a lot of my I'm not going to have opinions kind of thing from insofar as possible. Hope or fear like waves of the ocean all, this is a very interesting line, now all arising emerge from within oneself and are liberated within oneself. All arisings, it's always my version of things. It's not there in the solid form that we like to think it is. It arises because of my opinionatedness. And think about how often it's our opinionatedness that causes things to be the way they are. There's no reason to hold those opinions. We just want to. Um, Emerge from oneself and are liberated within oneself. How else does, does all of the conceptualization we've come up with be freed? It's freed within oneself. Are you teasing him? I was just trying to awaken him. <laughs> a very deep place. <clears throat> All arising emerge from oneself and are liberated within oneself, unborn and beyond all conceptual phenomena, free from any reference point of this is so or partiality. So this is moving us into non-referential meditation because obviously when we have to have a reference point to keep our minds here, that's a much more limited form of meditation than when we don't need reference points anymore. And there's a lot of discussion in Vajrayana Buddhism about being able to be free from reference point. So we use our reference I mean, the deity becomes our reference point. We use our reference point, but then we recognize it is not ultimate. It is a tool. Don't 
you know, don't mistake the tool for the end-all and be-all. Free from any reference point of this is so or partiality, everything within the self-liberated innate sphere is the unchanging true dharmakaya. I don't want to uh, bother to try to unpack that sentence. It would take us farther afield than we need to be. But um, that, that's how one undoes the text, recognizing that everything arises from oneself and uh, dissolves back into oneself, is liberated within oneself. So, you know, at the end of it, when you've done it and then undone it, there's nothing going on. There is nothing going on. One is sitting completely free from reference point insofar as possible. So you will always have, after you've created the visualization and visualized and recited the mantra, you always unwind it, undo it, and then there's always a period of silent practice. Nothing going on. Just silent practice. Just silent practice. Nothing going on. No reference point. Now, when you're new do, to doing this, um, you know, usually um, it's still, even though, like in my case, I had done a lot of formless practice, it was still really not possible for me to really rest at that point. My mind, that's when my mind would become active. Who asked me about an active mind earlier? That's when my mind would become active, was after I had dissolved everything and was supposed to be sitting there resting, doing nothing. Then it would be buzz, 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 buzz. So early on, one doesn't have a lot of directions for how to do the Sampanakrama. So usually people are told, well, just do shamatha. You know how to do shamatha. And that's what people do. But usually doesn't last very long. Though sometimes when I've been doing really intensive, long practices all day long, um, sometimes at that point, the... it's, it really is. There's really nothing going on. There's just nothing going on. And it's very, very peaceful and expansive. It's, uh, and it, you know, it can go on for a long time. When this has happened to me, at fire, when you've been practicing day after day after day, all day long, doing visualizations, and you finally come to the end of it at night, when you've been, like in this particular case, sitting around a fire, throwing wood into a fire all day long and reciting mantras and visualizing in the fire. And finally, it's over. It's finally done. And you wind the whole thing back in, unwind it, undo it, just let it collapse. That's how it feels. You just let it all collapse into nothing going on, complete formless resting So that's, that's the completion phase. The, the, do the creation phase as mind training, as skillful means, as overcoming mistaken identity. But the point of doing the mind training is to get to the point when one can simply rest without contrivance, without project, without reference point. Um, we say in the natural state of mind in the unborn, natural state of mind uh, that is also the enlightened state, the deathless, the undying nirvana, 
all of those nice buzzwords. So that is now uh, a beginning peak, just a peak now beginning into looking at Sampanakrama or completion phase. And the real Vajrayana training comes with Sampanakrama. But it can take years before you get there, before you get to really doing a lot of work with um, the resting phase. It's not easy to simply rest. As I think you all know, if you've done a lot of meditation, it's not easy to simply rest without getting bored. That's the first thing that happens. Getting bored, yeah. (laughs) Getting bored. Uh, Oh my God, when are they going to ring that gong? When is it going to be walking practice? Well, that rug, this has a very interesting pattern in that rug. I think I'll stare at the rug for a while. (laughs) All the things we can do when we can't simply rest. Or when we can't be mindful, I guess, would be another way of putting it. When um, we need more entertainment than just what's sheerly going on, what we can see with good mindfulness. So um, this can be a point again where we can stop for a little bit uh, and we can take Q&A. And when we're doing Q&A, those of you who don't have a Q&A or don't want to participate in it, that's a good time to do your other things that you have to do because the talks are too long. I don't like to break this stuff. It's just too hard to break it and jump in again. Questions. When you're visualizing yourself as the deity Mm -hmm. and you're doing um, the mudras, are you visualizing the deity doing the mudras, or is there two no. separate? No, the deity's okay. not doing the, the mudras. You're doing the mudras for the deity, or yourself as the deity. In other words, you're offering, you're offering the seven substances to yourself as the deity. Is this this is done once a week, once a day? When, uh, when does one, how does one practice daily, with this? Daily. daily, if you're doing, you know, if you're really doing it, yeah, daily. So you might set aside a half an hour to do this or something? Mm, yeah, okay. or, um, you know, uh, many pe- people want you to do more than that. Now, I don't do this myself anymore. At one time, I did a lot more of it, but... Um, and there's different sets of practices. There's the, the practice where you visualize yourself as the yidam. Then there are protector practices where you visualize the dharma protectors protecting the dharma. And those liturgies are pretty complicated. I don't want to go into protector liturgies. They're too complicated. But, um, you know, um, sessions, as with most meditation, you know, you can't get too much done if you don't devote an hour to it. Right? That's pretty standard when you're not a beginner anymore. 
that you would end up doing an hour. Uh, so you can do a sequence of these practices, too. You could have more than one. I used the word sadhana earlier, service or liturgy. You could have more than one sadhana that you would do. Um, I, the one that I've been reading from is one I like very much. This is a short version of a much longer one that is a really important daily practice. Now I'm going to read, uh, it's called Third, the Yoga of Dissolution. Uh, You won't understand all the words in this. Don't worry about not understanding all the Sanskrit words. Just get the feeling of how everything is being unwound and dissolving into emptiness. Now, it is very important that you understand that emptiness does not mean there's nothing there. It can sometimes mean there's nothing in particular there, but that's not what emptiness really means. What emptiness means is that nothing has any real existence. What is real existence? Real existing is existing by itself, being uncaused, and being permanent. You cannot find any such thing. You cannot find anything that is without causes, and is permanent, even rocks. And that's a very simple, very straightforward proof that everything is empty. So when we say things dissolve into emptiness, we're not necessarily saying there's nothing there, uh, but this room is, st- is still completely empty. And, you know, that's, that's the kind of awareness one develops that yes, these things appear, but they have no substance. And you don't have to have any fight between the fact that things appear and there's no inherent existence to them. And learning how to dwell, you know, not fixating on appearances, not clinging to appearances, not grabbing appearances, learning to dwell in that space where Everything has dissolved into emptiness, which doesn't mean you don't see anything. It doesn't necessarily mean you're just seeing blank or smoke or something. It means that there's no, there's no fixation on anything. It's very, um, you know, it's very liberating. It's very, very liberating to be able to move into that completion stage of... Um, and you can stay there. You can stay there endlessly. You don't ever have to... I mean, we do because we get confused again and start to attribute existence to things, start to grasp things, start to fixate. But we can stay in this spacious emptiness. You know, nothing ever has to bother us again. Nona? I just wanted to say that in um, the insight, the Theravada tradition, which I'm trained, um, we don't necessarily use the word emptiness but what we use instead often is the word the words um the way things are yeah mm-hmm. and the way things are is a way of not attributing mm-hmm. anything to the way things are right mm-hmm. so it's just the way things same are. thing it's, yeah. it's the same thing mm-hmm. tibetan and, uh, you know mahayana texts use the phrase ta 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 things as they are they use that a lot mm-hmm. and emptiness and suchness are considered to be pretty much interchangeable terms Suchness may have a little more connotation 
of the focusing on the appearing side of things. And emptiness has a little more focusing on the uh, non-substantiality, the non-inherentness of things. But non-inherentness, and yet that, that's, that's very much the... I mean, I think of tatata, suchness, as very Mahayana Vajrayana language. I also wanted to comment on the uh, just something back. You were talking about the in visualization, um, having done poa training and and Tara and the most recently the Chinrezig training. That the anyone who doesn't think it's mind training should try to <laughs> imagine the the sound syllable going in one direction and the other things spinning in the other direction. direction. And the heart of the de- I mean, holding all those things in the mind is certainly a it's concentration very, practice. It's very difficult. And, um, yeah. Yeah, and I I don't claim to be very good at it. I have a, a question about visualization. In the um, Theravada tradition, if we do jhana practice, sometimes we use visualization as a way of you uh, use uh, concentration. what do they call them? Um, Casinas. Uh, yeah, I studied. I've read. I studied the Vishuddhimagga pretty thoroughly last summer. So yeah, I'm familiar. But not everyone uh, apparently is able to visualize. Mm-hmm. So we have do, the same do all pro- Tibetan, Tibetans. No, I think uh, we have the same problem in the Tibetan tradition. The texts talk as if everybody could visualize, but yeah. doesn't so how, how seem do you to teach be the people case? who have difficulty visualizing? Well, like I said, it still is important to memorize the visualization so that you know where things are. I mean, I can't see a bodhisattva crown with the five petals, but I know what it looks like. And so when you see a, when you see a rupa or a tanka, you immediately recognize that's Tara. That's Vajrayogini. You immediately know. And you know that Vajrayogini has her, her right leg up and her left leg bent. And, uh, you know, you just know that she has a katvanga in the crook of her arm. You just know those things, uh, even if you, even if they don't appear in detail. Now, what's important is to be able to hold the mind, knowing that's what the visualization is, while you're reciting the mantra. Now, for me, what actually holds me is the ma- is the mantra. That's that's what holds me in the practice. Is and I'm used to doing a hundred a hundred syllable mantra, so that's that's a long one. It does reasonably well at holding. And the other thing, of course, is that you build the visualization up step by step. And you can do that because as you go through the text line by line, it's described. Then you see this, then you see this, then you see this, then you see... It doesn't say that, but it says, in his right hand is, and in his left hand is, on his head is, um, seated in X posture. You know, those descriptions, those details are all step-by-step described in the liturgy. So you just... Exactly what the liturgy tells you to do, you at least build it up. So then even if you can't hold it or if you lose it, it's still there. You can flash back onto it in an instant. Um, but I, when I started reading the material last summer in the Vishuddhi Maga on casinas, um, you know, and I read it to my fellow Vajrayana students, and they were very intrigued. Of, oh, this is the beginnings of the visualization practices that we do, and it probably is. It's very similar. It's just that the casinas are much more 
limited in scope than visualizing a deity in the palace. There's much, much more detail, in visu- especially when you start visualizing palaces as well as deities. Uh, but I think that it, it's, to me, irrefutable. I mean, casino practice is not in the Nikayas. At least I've never run into it. But, um, but it's in the Vishuddhi Maga. And it's, you know, it's important. And I know it's important in some Theravada practice. So I've never tried to do casino practice. I once, when I was teaching, I was teaching of the Four Truths program a little over a year ago, a little less than a year ago, and somebody asked me, do you have to be able to hold a concentration visualization to become enlightened? And I said, no. You do need to be able to move into... Uh, this, the completion phase and remain at ease without reference point and without having to have something to fabricate and to glom onto. You know, we have trouble find, being able to glom on in a consistent way, and then we have trouble when there's nothing to glom onto. But nothing to glom onto uh, and being, being at ease. You know, being at ease with nothing going on. The essence of boredom is there's not enough going on. There's got to be more. And um, that's, you know, a big... It's hard to get to the point where you... Just think about when your plane is delayed at the airport and you don't have a book with you waiting for the plane. And people become so utterly impatient... A well-trained meditator should be able to cope with that situation without jumping out of your skin. Um, I'm hearing in this, uh, someone has even mentioned the word, there's a lot of shamatha practice here, a lot of concentration, Mm -hmm. visualization. Mm -hmm. And then it seems like at the end where everything opens and is... I don't then know. It's vipassana. That's the vipassana part, but um, I don't hear. Maybe I, I don't hear instruction that yeah. goes with that. I haven't em- gotten Emptiness there yet. is obviously emphasized as opposed to yeah. anicca or dukkha, but I'm curious how that is. That I, have, I haven't part? given. I haven't given any of the instruction yet for how to actually do some panakrama, besides okay. hoping for the best. <laughs> Okay. Besides <laughs> dropping your reference point and kind of hoping for the best, there's a lot of instruction. Okay. There's a lot that's of instruction, and that's yeah. what I wanted to go to next. That's what I wanted to go to next. But I wanted to read this one dissolution text. And as I said, you don't, you're not going to understand all the Sanskrit words, and I don't need any need to explain them. Just sometimes when you're studying Dharma, you have to learn how to not worry about the fact that there are words you don't understand and you need to get the bigger point and come back and do the specific words later on. That's one of the most important skills for you to learn because if you get frustrated every time there's a word you don't understand and you want to stop the flow and say, what does that word mean? You just can't, you can't learn that way. It's too much all at once. So the visualization has been built up 
and one has been saying the mantra. And then the, this, the text for dissolving the visualization goes like this. Rays of light from one's heart center strike the mandala circle. That's the boundary of the area one has been visualizing. Strike the mantra circle which melts into light and dissolves into oneself. So everything out there dissolves into light and melts into oneself. Uh, the samaya sattva, you're not going to understand these words, so don't worry about it. Dissolves into oneself, the samaya sattva, who dissolves into the janana sattva, which dissolves into the jana- samadhi sattva, which dissolves into the home. The home is the seed syllable that's at the heart of the heart of the heart. The home progressively dissolves up to the nada. The syllable dissolves from the bottom up into the nada, which is a squiggle that goes like this, which dissolves through non-conceptualization into the state of radiant emptiness. So you've dissolved everything, and it dissolves very slowly. And it dissolves into the state of radiant emptiness. So, um, <coughs> to do, there are lots of versions actually of completion practices. Uh, sometimes the six yogas of Naropa, the famous six yogas of Naropa that some of you have heard about, is also considered a completion practice. I'm not going to say anything about those practices. I. Um, I've done them some, but not a lot, and I've been told that I that it's not something I should focus on. So, um, we'll let those aside. What I want to focus on for the rest of the day is uh, what is called Mahamudra practice. M a h a m u d r a, Mahamudra practice which here in my notes it says is the Vajrayana version of silent, formless practices and is considered the true treasure of the path overall. Um, Sometimes you also hear the word Dzogchen, D-Z-O-G-C-H-E-N. You sometimes hear that word. Uh, They're very, very similar to one another. The differences are minute and fine-toned, and I wouldn't even want to begin to try to present them if I could, and I don't think I can. But Mahamudra is what I will spend some time talking about. Um, Mahamudra practices are considered to be, you know, the, the true treasure of the path overall. Uh, and now there is a tremendous amount of good literature in English on Mahamudra, which I think is a, is a really great event um, Twenty years ago, the Tibetan teachers were, be- were just not willing to let Mahamudra teachings out of the bag because they considered them to be so important. You know, and the, but it's, it seems you know backwards. If this is the what it's all about, why would you be so reluctant to talk about them? But they felt that people would misunderstand them; that they were too ambitious and too grasping and that people would try to grasp something and not learn how to truly rest. But then a few teachers decided, no, that it's, it's time. 
it's time to let these teachings out. So I want to give you, uh, I think the first thing I want to do is give you what I consider to be the single, the single best, the single best English language book on Mahamudra, uh, which is called Mind at Ease. Uh, Mind at Ease. The author is Traleg, T-R-A-L-E-G, the name, if you look it up on Amazon.com, you'll need this name. The second name is Kyabgon, K-Y-A-B-G-O-N, Traleg Kyabgon. Traleg is a young Tibetan teacher. He died about two years ago at very young age. I consider him to be a really, really excellent teacher. Uh, he had a Western Ph. He was thoroughly trained in Tibetan things. But he was something of a freelancer and a rebel. And he also had a Western PhD, I believe, in psychology. He did Western religious studies. So, of course, for me to read a book by him in which he talks about the classics of Western academic study of religion is a tremendous relief. So the name of the book is Mind at Ease. Uh, and the subtitle is Self-Liberation Through Mahamudra Meditation. This is a meditation manual. It's quite a long meditation manual. We read this in my Eau Claire study group. and We read very, very slowly and discuss everything thoroughly. Um, and it took us like over a year, meeting once a week and discussing. It took us over a year to get through this book. So if you are people who really are serious about your own meditation practice and you do some self-directing or you read Dharma books and anything that I say about Mahamudra strikes your interest, I would recommend reading this book. And I would recommend starting at the beginning and not trying to skip around. Don't skip around. Start at the beginning. Read it in the uh, way that he presents things. Um, it's it's really, really a good book, and you will. There's no one whose practice it wouldn't help, in my view. I think I've convinced Nona to read it. You think what? I think, I, I think it's now in my Kindle. Oh, that's moving along. So, what does Trolleg talk about in this? book. First of all, all teachers of Mahamudra will say you have to train in the preliminaries. Don't think you can just go for the gold ring right away and, you know, that you don't need to train in the preliminaries. Uh, you need to train gradually in the preliminaries. The four reminders for sure are something now, this notion of doing paramita parami practice is equivalent to the four nundros. That's interesting. Uh, one of the things some of the Tibetan teachers are trying to do now to get people through that stage of serious preliminary practice is have people work very intensely for several years with the Lojong slogans, a set of teachings called the Lojong slogans. You're familiar, you know what I'm talking about. It's a very, very good set of training guidelines. And uh, Trolley Grimpache actually also has the very, very best book 
on the slogans. It's the very best book on the slogans. It's so good. We read it in Eau Claire as well, and it really changed people's lives. So it's a, it's a great book. Um, that's one way to train seriously in the slogans. But you've got to do something that's more than just philosophy. It's important to do philosophy. But you've got to do something that's more pithy and directly experiential. The slogan practice is directly experiential. And it takes, you know, it will take, to really work through all the slogans and really work through them, will take a year or two if you do it right. So we, we have to, and this is how this book starts too. These are the preliminaries. This is what I'll give you as preliminary trainings. This is how I want you to do them. And this book also is very good in that it has, it has sessions, you know, a, a session you can do, a paragraph or a page long uh, of a session you can do, a description of a session and how to set it up, uh, when to end it. So uh, Mahamudra manuals are divided into shamatha and vipassana sections. Um, that's those are, that answers your question. Those are the two main um, forms of training. And people, some people say, and I agree, I would say the same thing. Mahamudra is actually, among other things the Vajrayana version of the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. <coughs> because many of, the, many of the exercises are the same as that thing you always find in the Pali Canon where the Buddha says, whatever you think is yours, it's not. <laughs> it's not yours. It's not yours. Find that self that you think is so real. Find it. And that's the fundamental Vipassana question in Mahamudra. Find. The word is used as mind rather than the word self. But find your mind. Find your mind which you value so highly and which you think is so real. Now in Tibetan there are many words for mind. Here they're talking about finding your, you know, the confused mind which is the one we always get tangled up in our, our low mind, our, our conceptual mind. You believe in your conceptual mind. You believe that your conceptual mind grasps truth. Uh, you believe that it teaches you you exist. Find it. Find it. But anyway, to go back, Mahamudra manuals are divided into shamatha and vipassana practice. Uh, there is some understanding that shamatha should precede vipassana. But there is also some understanding that some people are immediately, immediately have a lot of insight and other people um, don't. But some people immediately, without even having developed a tranquil state of mind, have a lot of insight. So uh, shamatha is translated usually as tranquility or peacefulness. Dwelling peacefully. Dwelling peacefully doesn't mean being peaceful. 
Dwelling peacefully means the mind is willing to stay where you put it. That's a peaceful mind, one that is willing to stay where you put it. I want to think about this issue right now, so my mind will think about this issue. It doesn't mean that there is an allegiance to feeling peaceful as opposed to feeling agitated. It's more that where we put the mind, the mind will stay. That's tranquility. And vipassana, uh, vipassana, uh, vipassana, I always use Sanskrit rather than Pali because that's my training. Um, the uh, Pali for shamatha is sati, which has to do, no, that's mindfulness. What is this Pali for shamatha? Samatha. Samatha. Yeah, samatha. And uh, vipassana is translated as uh, clear seeing, seeing things as they are, clear seeing or special insight. Now there is a very strong bias in Buddhism that to really have clear seeing, you have to have some stability of mind. You have to have some tranquility of mind because otherwise you will refuse to contemplate deeply things that are offensive like egolessness and emptiness. The mind will simply say, that's not true. I'm not going there. I exist. You're not going to convince me I don't exist. So unless you have a stable mind, you can't even keep the mind on contemplating deeply what would that be like you can't even keep the mind there so you can never penetrate the truth of emptiness the truth of egolessness without a bit of a stable mind a mind that will stay with that puzzling confusing topic and that does that is okay with being puzzled because the mind gets very puzzled when you tell it to think about mindfully egolessness and emptiness I remember, I remember very, very well. I remember very well going over and over and over. You know, what could this... Ah, what could this mean? How does this all add up? And it was very, very slow. It was very, very slow. So there is a general bias in Buddhism that to develop clear seeing you have to develop some stability or some tranquility of mind, some ability to make the mind behave. (laughs) Then it says, I don't want to think about this. You say, sorry, you're going to think about this. Which, you know, anybody who is disciplined at anything knows how to do that. It is also a very strong bias in Buddhism that um, shamatha by itself or tranquility and stability by itself is not enough. That isn't enlightenment. You have to understand. You have to have clear seeing. In other words, as I said, you know, you could sit on a cushion for 25 years. That doesn't necessarily mean you're going to become enlightened. Uh, also, you know, you could visualize the yidam perfectly and do it for years, 
But if you don't know what you're doing or why you're doing it or what it means or the meanings of the symbolism, because as we go through setting up the visualization of the deity, there's a very minute description of the deity and everything means something. Everything is symbolism. All those hand gestures are symbolism. All those jewels are symbolism. Everything is symbolism. So that's part of what you need to work on and memorize is what is the symbolism of this. You know, it's not that you're necessarily visualizing a male deity and a female deity. Uh, You're visualizing the union of wisdom and compassion. If you don't know that that's what's going on, you might as well just go to a porno flick or something. It would be more entertaining. So uh, that's, that's a very strong bias that you do need samatha, but it's not enough. It's not sufficient by itself. And the manuals are very, very strong on that. Uh, so shamatha is defined in Mahamudra manuals, if you want a definition, as holding the mind that is not held. And there are lots of techniques for training in how to hold the mind that is not held. Most of them start with, um, one of the commonest is just to take a rock and hold your mind on a rock. Uh, That's one of the first exercises. So holding it on a material object is a very um, preliminary training. An impure material object, it could be anything. You know, as we often say when we're giving preliminary meditation instruction, your reference point could be anything. It doesn't really matter what your reference point is. But the breath is a good one for various reasons. But, you know, it doesn't really matter what your reference point is but you need to have one. So impure reference points would be things like uh, a rock or a tree or um, a flower. People tend to like pretty reference objects. Somehow they think that's going to improve their mental stability, but I doubt it. (laughs) I really doubt it. It wouldn't matter if it was dog shit. It would work just as well. And I think people need to overcome their pious and romantic notions with recognitions like that. Being pious, I don't think anybody's gotten enlightened by being pious. So the pure uh, external objects are things like statues of a Buddha. That's a very common reference point a Buddha statue or a picture of your teacher sometimes, though that's not, you get too sentimental. That brings up too much emotion. Uh, But a statue of the Buddha. And then um, immaterial reference, well, material reference points that are not external, like the breath. So breath is, you know, I mean, breath is used in virtually all Buddhist traditions is a very common uh, reference point. And counting the breath is taught in Tibetan forms of meditation. Um, I teach it a lot, actually. Uh, counting the breath, I think, is a, is a very good mind-training device. And um, 
What Trungpa Rinpoche used to teach as the reference point is actually virtually impossible to do. He used to do focusing only on the out-breath and at the end of the out-breath dissolving awareness of breath completely and then catching the next out-breath. That, I mean, I, I've just done it <laughs> for months and years and years. I don't know that I ever did it successfully. It's very hard to catch the next Outbreath. It's easy to let go of an outbreath at the end of the outbreath, but then to catch the next one? That's not very easy at all. It would take a lot more concentration than I think I developed. But anyway, working with the breath in various ways is also very common in Tibetan Buddhism. And then, of course, you can see leading from there how visualization is just a much more complicated reference point. It's a much more complicated reference point. There's a lot more going on. The visualization, in a certain sense, has more meaning to it because you are also visualizing how enlightened mind would appear if it took anthropomorphic form. It doesn't, but if it did, it would look like that, not like this. That's all. So uh, shamatha is holding the mind that is not held, uh, developing stability or stillness. And then uh, the next section after that is um, vipassana or clear seeing. Clear seeing is the real point of Buddhist meditation. But it's also important to understand that stability and clear seeing are not polar opposites, that you can do both at the same time. And in fact, you know, any, any good training, you will be doing both at the same time. So, uh, in, you know, there's lots of exercises in Vipassana, many, many exercises in Vipassana. Uh, some of the most famous are various directions for finding Finding the mind or the self that you believe is real. And one of the more famous riddles is, what color is your mind? I'm sure some of you have heard that one, right? What color is your mind? I mean, we're all, we're pretty much we're convinced that we're real. Well, if we're real, then we have minds that are real, so that mind would have to have uh, a color. So what color is it? <laughs> you know, you'll end up sitting there for 20 minutes or so. Well, what color is my mind? If we were going to do meditation in this program, this is the point of point at which we should do it. Another very famous one is where is your mind? What, no, they're going on from color. What is your mind's shape? Does it have a head and arms and legs? And I think that people could use these Mahamudra exercises to break down reliance on gender identity, but they never have been used that way traditionally, which is something I've pointed out more than once in my teaching. And when I have taught Mahamudra to Vajrayana students, I have made them do... <coughs> the question of where is where is your mind find it in your body is it in the genital parts of your body and 
the Western students deeply resented being asked to think about that. They didn't want to do it. And I think it's a very good exercise because where do most people think they really are? Where's my me? What makes me, me? Most people aren't going to focus on their eye color or their height. What makes me, me? That's the question you're asking. What makes me, me? What is the shape of my mind? Um, is your mind inside your body or outside your body? Is it there in the object or is it here? Is it there or here? Where is it? And when you work these, people don't like to do Mahamudra exercises on the one hand because you just say that's a silly question. Obviously that's a silly question. Well, mine doesn't have a color. Mine doesn't have a shape. When you do, is it, is it, you know, is it inside or outside? That gets a little trickier. You know, what causes sounds? Is it a vibration out there or is it something vibrating in here? It's very interesting when one day you say, I can't tell. That's a very interesting point. When one day you just say, hmm. But people don't like to do Mahamudra investigations because people will say, well, the answers are obvious. The answers are obvious. There is no answer. That's not the point. Uh, the point is that these are exercises you do. There are many ways they're very similar to Zen koans. You are given a riddle to work on to exhaust intellectual conceptual mind. Your exercise is to keep thinking about this riddle until you solve it. Right? That's your assignment. Keep thinking about this riddle, like what color is your mind, until you solve it. And I'm not going to let you do an empty... That's what you have to do, period. Don't ask what's next. There is no next. You've got to solve this riddle. Which is exactly as I understand it anyway, how koan practice works. And, um, you know, the point is that at a certain point you just give up. There's some kind of a, a breakthrough where you just have a burst of insight that is non-conceptual. And you give up. Teachers usually can tell not by any things you say, but in how you move your body how you interact with them, uh, whether you've become less fixated, whether you've become more spontaneously kind. Those are the things that give some indication that you have, in fact, uh, solved your riddle. That you keep chewing on the program until there is a breakthrough. So, um, one of the stories my teacher likes to tell is when she was learning Mahamudra practice, learning these, they're called the Mahamudra investigations. When she was learning them, 
Um, her teacher was her father. And, you know, the questions were asked, and people would give their little answers of one sort or another. And he'd just dismiss their answers. He'd say, you're not searching hard enough. That's your problem. You're not searching hard enough. That's why you can't come up with an answer. It's because you're just not searching hard enough. You have to look harder. I'm sure if you look harder, you will find the answer. What color is your mind? You will find a color. You will find a shape. You aren't looking hard enough. And that she said the last thing he finally did was tell them, he said, get down on your hands and knees and look in the fibers of the carpet. Examine every fiber in the carpet. Because you haven't examined every possible place yet for where is your mind. It's probably right down there in the fibers of the carpet. That's where your self is. That's where your ego is. It's down there in the fibers of the carpet. Find it. And he made all these students get down on their hands and knees picking through carpet for, you know, for a long time. That's the kind of persistence of going after what is it that is beyond that question? What finally pops? When you finally pop that question, what finally pops? And that's the point of, in the long run, of Mahamudra Vajrayana disciplines. We talk about uh, Sampanakrama, we talked about the resting stage, resting. And I was that very, some nice, very nice, eloquent things to say about resting. But what is that resting really? Um, we have a phrase that's just like the phrase, things as they are. We have a phrase that we use a lot in Vajrayana language. We want to rest in the natural state of mind. There is a natural, unborn state of mind, our birthright, because, you know, this ties in with the teachings that we are all have the potential for enlightenment. We just have clouded it over. We all have that potential. But the natural state of mind is what's there when we finally um, get rid of all the confusions, all the cloudy material that's obstructing our view. That's what's there. And of course, people always want to know, well, what is that? Can't you, can't you describe it for me more fully? And I know of only one text that I think does a very good description of it, so I'm going to read that text. Uh, it'll be familiar to many of you. It's the Bahya Sutra, which is, or Sutta, which is one of my favorite of all of the Pali Suttas. Uh, it's also a sutra that Kandor Rinpoche teaches. And, um, you know, you've listened to the text and you have some glim, some glimmer. You'll get some hint of the natural state of mind which if we put words on it, we'd say it's clear and knowing, but that doesn't say a lot, so forget that. I'm going to read the whole text. I have heard that on one occasion the Blessed One was staying near Savati at Jetta's Grove, Anatta Pindaka's monastery. And on that occasion, Bahia of the Bark Koth was living in Supakraka by the seashore. He was worshipped, revered, honored, venerated, and given homage, a recipient of robes, alms, food, lodgings, and medicinal requisites for the sick. Then when he was alone in seclusion, this line of thinking appeared to his awareness. 
Now of those in this world who are arahants and have entered the path of arahantship, am I one? Then a devata, a slightly more developed being, a devata who had once been a blood relative of Bahia of the bark cloth, compassionate, desiring his welfare, knowing with her own awareness that the line of thinking that had arisen in his awareness went to him on an arrival and said to him, You, Bahia, are neither an arhat nor have you entered the path of arahantship. You don't even have the practice whereby you would become an arahant or enter the path of arahantship. Who then in this world with its devas are arahants or have entered the path to arahantship? Bahia, there is in a city in the northern country named Saviti, there is the Blessed One, an Arahant, greatly self-awakened, is living now. He truly is an Arahant and teaches the Dharma, the Dhamma leading to Arahantship. Then Bahia, deeply chastised, deeply chastened by the Devata, left Suparaka right then and left in the space of one night and went all the way to where the Blessed One was staying near Savati at Jetta's Grove, Anatapindika's monastery. Now the notes say this is a very long way, something like it's from Bombay to Bihar, somewhere in Bihar, which is about 1,200 miles. It's a very long ways. Now on that occasion, a large number of monks were doing walking meditation in the open air. He went to them and on arrival said, Where, venerable sirs, is the Blessed One, the Arahant, rightly self-awakened, now staying? We want to see that Blessed One, the Arahant, rightly self-awakened. The Blessed One has gone to town for alms. Then Bahia, hurriedly leaving Jeta's grove and entering Savati, saw the Blessed One going for alms in Savati, serene and inspiring, serene confidence, calming his senses at peace, his mind at peace, having attained the utmost tranquility and poise, tamed, guarded, his senses restrained, a great one. Seeing him, he approached the Blessed One, and on reaching him, he threw himself down with his head at the Blessed One's feet and said, Teach me the Dhamma, O Blessed One, teach me the Dhamma, O well-gone one, that it will be for my long-term welfare and bliss. When, the blessed, when this was said, the Blessed One said to him, This is not the time, Bahia, we have entered the town for alms. A second time, Bahia said to the Blessed One, But it is hard to know for sure what dangers there may be for the Blessed One's life or what dangers there may be for mine. Remember that second reminder this morning? Teach me the Dhamma, O Blessed One. Teach me the Dhamma, O Well-Gone One, that it will be for my long-term welfare and bless. The second time the Blessed One said to him, This is not the time, Bahia. We have entered the town for alms. A third time Bahia said to the Blessed One, But it is hard to know for sure what dangers there may be for the Blessed One's life or what dangers they may be for mine. Teach me the Dhamma, O Blessed One. Teach me the Dhamma, O Well-Gone One, that it will be for my long-term welfare and bliss. Now there's a lot of teaching in that long prologue, which is that we need to be serious about our search. No, we don't necessarily say, oh, I need to entertain myself, or I can't take a whole day out for a program. I can only take half a day. I have other important things to do. 
the tendency we have to always make everything else more important than the Dhamma. Uh, Bahia is not that way. Then, Bahia, you should train yourself thus. This is the training. I think these are the magic words. In reference to the scene, there will be only the scene. In reference to the herd, only the herd. In reference to the sensed, only the sense. In reference to the cognized, only the cognized. That is how you should train yourself. When, for you, there will be only the scene in reference to the scene, only the herd in reference to the herd, only the sensed in reference to the sensed, only the cognized in reference to the cognized, then, Bahia, there is no you in connection with that. When there is no you in connection with that, then there is no you there. When there is no you there, you are neither here nor yonder nor between the two. This, just this, is the end of stress. Through hearing of this brief explanation of the Dhamma from the Blessed One, the mind of Bahia of the bark cloth right then and there was released from affluence through the lack of clinging sustenance Having exhorted Bahia of the bark cloth with this deep, brief explanation of the Dhamma, the Blessed One left. Now, not long after the Blessed One's departure, Bahia was attacked and killed by a cow with a young calf. Then the Blessed One, having gone for alms in Saviti after the meal, returning from his alms round with a large number of monks, so that Bahia had died. On seeing him, he said to the monks, Take Bahia's body, monks, and placing it on a litter, and carry it away to cremate it and build him a memorial. Your companion in the holy life has died. Responding, as you say, Lord, to the Blessed One, the monks placing Bahia's body on a litter, carrying it away, cremating it, and building him a memorial, went to the Blessed One, on arrival having bowed down to him, sat to one side. As they were sitting there, they said to him, Bahia's body has been cremated, Lord, and his memorial has been built. What is his destination? What is his future state? Monks, Bahia of the bark cloth was wise. He practiced the Dhamma in accordance with the Dhamma and did not pester me with issues related to the Dhamma. Bahia of the bark cloth, monks, is totally unbound. Then, on realizing the significance of that, the Blessed One on that ex occasion exclaimed, Where water, earth, fire, and wind have no footing, there the stars don't shine, the sun isn't visible, the moon doesn't appear, there darkness is found. And when a sage, a Brahman through sagacity, has realized this for himself, then from form and formless, from bliss and pain, he is freed. So that's the text. Um, when we do, when we do resting, if we can rest that way, 
The seen only in the seen, the heard only in the heard, the cognized, only the cognized in the cognized. In reference to the seen, there will only be the seen. In reference to the heard, only the heard. In reference to the sensed, only the sensed. In reference to the cognized, only the cognized. That is how you should train yourself. Now, the last sentence of this is also key. Then, Bahia, there is no you in connection with that. If there is in the scene only the scene, there is no seer, no you. When there is no you in connection with that, then there is no you there. When there is no you there, you are neither here nor yonder nor between the two. This just this is the end of stress. So that's as far as one can go with uh, stories and texts and words. And I really cannot imagine a better place to contemplate or a better thing to contemplate. Um, and we could perhaps, uh, if you have to, take a break and then we can do Q&A if there is any Q&A. And if we have the energy for it, we could end with a meditation session on this only the scene in the scene, not putting anything extra onto anything. So do you need a break right now or do you want to go to Q&A? I have questions. I have lots of questions. Um, the Mahamudra, when did that start? Was that a, did that slowly develop from Nalanda onwards, or was that something that was discovered? It's, I, I, I can't give you a clear question as to the historical origins. Most of the texts that I know were composed in Tibet. It's a specialty of the Kagyu masters of Tibet. So it's Kagyu, too. It's Kagyu. It's a specialty of the Kagyu masters of Tibet, but... Um, as I said, I think it's the the ear-whispered lineage from very early Buddhism and good meditation instruction like this passed down from the very beginnings of Buddhism all the way through. In other words, I would say I think it's as old as Buddhism, though not by the name Mahamudra and not with the specific techniques that I've outlined like you know, I mean, the shamatha techniques that I outlined are very common shamatha techniques. Many schools of Buddhism have those shamatha techniques. The Mahamudra investigations that you don't really find. Well, we do investigations. In... They're very similar, aren't they? We Our investigations, or the ones that I've been instructed in, I, I don't know, um, are generally based on things sim- similar something to the Bahia teaching. So using the five khandas or the elements or something to really, you know, what what is it? That, that, and I think um, actually Kim uh, alluded to this, is what is it that isn't anatta 
or anicca, or you know, that you're looking for, you know, it's an inquiry. We do some contemplation once the mind gets still enough, when an inquiry into what's arising mm-hmm. and, and looking. Is this, what about this? Is arising is permanent. So if you're using the elements, for example, you're looking at the different elements of which we are composed mm-hmm. and investigating how are these are these, yes. is there a self? Is it permanent? There are mahas. And, yeah. it, and if it's in or the skandhas, what we, you know, the skandhas, mm-hmm. we're looking at how does a self get generated out of this arising of these five skandhas? How does this happen? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's all about, I mean, it's, it's uh, not a, such an applied, in the beginning it might be an applied inquiry, but as the time goes by, the arising of, Insight, and then one can apply these kind of questions to make to see to measure out or I don't know what the yeah it's it's really very very similar. I'm just going to just add on to that. It sounds Abhidharma-ish a little bit, or the how. Mm. I, I guess my question is two questions. Then does this sort of does the Gelug people and the, the Kagyu people and the Nyingma people do this, or is it specific to one sect? Oh, they all do it to some extent. They're different versions of it. I'm teaching. I'm teaching out of a Kagyu manual. Okay. And I, the other question was: Is how do the Tibetan teachers sort of reflect on the Abhidharma and? Do oh, they, they do. See, Abhidharma, they Abhidharma is preliminary training. It's preliminary academic training. You would study that back when you're doing academic training, before you started serious meditation training. And many Tibetans do pretty serious academic training before they do um, meditation training. R- Rita, I have a question um, over here. Where are we? <laughs> um, so I've been exposed to this through a, through a Bon tradition in which they do true core, which is this, this kind of in line of inquiry. Um, do you have well, anything to say true, about Bon? Um, true core, actually, true core is usually uh, a set as a very complicated yoga, working with the elements, among other things. I've done a little training in true core, but I don't think of this as similar to true core training. Or maybe it's tektron. Is it tre- trekcho? Okay, you've trekton. been trekcho so, and true yeah. core are two different things. Sorry, trekcho is very similar to this. Yeah, trekcho means cutting through. Mm-hmm. Where did Trungpa Rinpoche get that title for his book, Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism? Treksho is, is a nyingma, Dzogchen discipline, of cutting through, cutting through all of our fixations. Yeah, but they had, they had questions very similar to Yeah, and they have this, questions so, as well. You know, what, what, is, what is the mind that's yeah, hearing? Yeah, they're very similar. The Treksho yeah. and Mahamudra, many people consider to be pretty similar. And then in, in you have uh, leaping over, which would be, you know, once you've cut away all the crap, you fall into. There's a Zen statement that enlightenment is like uh, the plug comes out of the bathtub and all the water whooshes out of it all at once. Or like stepping off the top of the 100-foot bamboo. Have you heard that phrase, stepping off the top of the 100-foot bamboo? It's a very... You know, you you um, with koans as well. There's the struggle quality, the puzzle quality, 
And, you know, the struggle of trying to solve a puzzle is, I think, is very, very important. Because if you're not, even though you know the puzzle has no answer or no conceptual answer, if you're not willing to go through the process of struggling to solve it, you will not get to the point of truly understanding what the no answer is or what the no answer feels like. And the no answer will feel like uh, this in the scene there is only the scene. So that if this, there's only, this, in the scene there's only the scene, there's no you. There's no you seeing. Which is, you know, mysterious to... What's the anatta? What we would call anatta. Well, so, so would, you know, you any... Yeah, well, anatta is just the Sanskrit word. We tend to use egolessness English a lot. Yes. Um, I just got curious about the Bahia Sutta. Is that considered an early sutta, a late sutta? When did it's that a come into sutta. the... I know it's from the canon, but when within that stratum where did I it can't answer that. Okay. No one could probably answer that better than I could, whether it's later and early uh, in the strata of Pali suttas. Yeah, is it likely to be the actual words of the Buddha, or was it... To me, it seems... You know, nobody can ever answer those questions. It's so frustrating. But it seems, you know, as good a possibility as any. It's so, you know, it's so... It's... it's, I mean, when I first heard that teaching, which was quite some time ago, I was like, oh, that's... That's really... um, That's really... A breath of fresh air. The, um, it's one of two times, there's only one other time that someone is killed by a cow in the Pali canon and a heifer. Um, and uh, as a result, I think, I think it's Getland that argues that it's actually probably, uh, you know, based on, uh, a, from the oral tradition, based on a, a original teaching story so. earlier. It's nice just to sit and have lots of questions, isn't it? You still have more? I have a question about you. You used the word earlier, a terma or a terton? Terma. Ter- what are those? Terma. Remember this morning somebody asked about uh, the origins of Mahayana, that people believed they were encountering Buddhas in visionary experiences. And the terma are the texts that come out of those visionary experiences. Though uh, the Tibetan tradition has, you know, in Tibetan tradition, terma texts are taken very, very seriously. And they're considered, it's considered that you need, that's what keeps the religion up to date, is that the great sages of the present have such clarity that they can actually encounter reliable teachings or bring the reliable teachings back for the rest of us which I think is a wonderful religious teaching that the sages of the present have that kind of clarity and wisdom um, no I mean it's so hard to get somebody who's taught religion my whole life it's so hard to get present-day people to take present-day teachers seriously I don't know if you have an answer to this, but I'm, I'm, I've been curious for a long time. Um, I have some friends who are Vajrayana practitioners, 
and they know that I practice in the Theravada uh, tradition, and they said something like they were going to go to a, a you know, they did shamatha vipassana, and they and I said, oh yeah, you know, we do that too, and they said, oh, we don't practice the same kind of vipassana that you do. And this, and I was like, well, what kind of vipassana? Do, you know, so is there is there a um, a particular perception of Theravada well, vipassana? I, I I don't you know that to me that's all that sectarian gossip that I don't pay much attention to. That's what it is to me that you know people have some deep seated need to believe my version is better than yours. You know, my God is bigger than yours. That's such a problem. So that's what I think is just their gossip. That, well, if it's Vajrayana, of course has to be superior. Couldn't be the same as what you do. But insight into the nature of my insight into the way things are. Yeah, right. How could it be different? How could it be Christian or Buddhist or Zen or Vajrayana or Theravadan? It makes no sense. It makes absolutely no sense. It's only when you believe in your conceptual handles that you can still say things like that. Yes? So in Mahayana, they have the esoteric school, which in Japan is called Shingon. Shingon. How's that different? How's that differ from Vajrayana? Or is Shingon, Shingon is a virgin of Vajrayana. Um, and I don't know much about Shingon. Very few Westerners have practiced it deeply. Um, it's very esoteric. It's very ritualistic. And I don't know how much actual pith dharma teaching there is. I don't know. Because, see, the Japanese, when Buddhism... Buddhism, this is part of the perversion of Buddhism, especially in East Asia, that Buddhism was perceived as more powerful magic and that's why rulers in East Asian countries wanted to bring Buddhism in, because it was more powerful magic for the protection of the state. And Shingon was perceived as very powerful. This is so, it's so ritualistic. I mean, it's, it's extremely complicated. And I don't, beyond that, I have not even any desire to learn much about Shingon. Was it, wasn't that how Tibetan Buddhism ended up in, in Tibet? Was a Padra? Padmasambhava, sure, about all the demons? Well, that's, yeah, the story of how Buddhism wound up in Tibet is, yeah, that there was a faction that wanted Buddhism to come in and there was a faction that was against it. And Padmasambhava was the only one who was able to tame the party that um, didn't want Buddhism introduced into Tibet. But once Buddhism was introduced into Tibet, people became very serious about serious practice. Buddhist practice in Tibet has always been very, very serious. People study a lot. They spend years in solitary meditation. Um, they're very, very serious about real practice. It would be very hard to say that Tibetan Buddhism is nothing but magical practice. That would be gossip and prejudice, just like saying... Well, if it's Vajrayana, it has to be better than Theravada. It would be a same level of, of gossip and prejudice to say, well, Tibetan Buddhism is nothing but magic and superstition and doesn't add up to anything because it's all airy-fairy and all they do is visualize things that aren't really there and why don't they just sit on the ground and follow their breath? That, that would be a very, you know, that kind of version of 
Vajrayana Buddhism, which I'm trying to say there's more to it than that. Well, also, I think also Westerners don't, my, my conversations I have with Tan Jeff, there's a lot of certain schools that people are attracted to magic and things like that. Even, yeah, even, well, even in I, the States here, at certain um, Buddhist centers, people are more attracted to magic or... Well, sure, you always have that. Yeah. You always yeah. have that. But I wouldn't get my understanding of Vajrayana Buddhism from Tan Jeff. Oh, no, he wasn't, wasn't talking him. about Vajrayana. He was talking about in Theravadan Buddhism. Oh, yeah, there that are... There are, are in, in Asia and Thailand, people are really oh, attracted. Oh, yeah, in Thailand. The teachers the, who teach magic, magic and stuff like cults, that. Yeah. And even in even, the way he was telling me, there's even in the United States, in Los Angeles, there are certain centers like that. Religion is infinitely pervertible. <laughs> um, I'm wondering, in, in Tibet and, and in the Tibetan tradition, is there more of an emphasis on monastic or lay practice, or are they just two different ways of practicing? There are two different ways of practicing. There are um, many of the most highly realized, recognized teachers are lay, lay teachers. The monastic community is more the support system, but the teachers, most of the teachers are married and uh, have families. And so there's a very strong tradition of serious lay practice. And there's a, sl- a slogan for in Tibetan Buddhism that we're neither monk nor lay. That we, we aren't, you know, we, we are not monastics. We don't follow all the rules of monasticism. But we're not as, uh, we're not lay either because we take it much more seriously than the stereotype about what lay Buddhists could do. And that's a very strong tradition in Tibet. Now, for women in Tibet, actually, it's called the yogi householder tradition. For women, the yogi tradition and the yoginis, uh, that's a much better because monast- monasteries don't have much room for women in Tibet. Practice for nuns has been very weak and very limited until fairly recently. It's getting a lot stronger now. Uh, but, you know, there are lots of legends of, of famous yoginis. So that's where women did... what. No, not that things were ever great for women in Tibet, but at least there were possibilities and paths and women recognized as very great practitioners. Yes. This might be the same question. I was thinking about the bodhisattva ideal um, and whether that was more, that path was more often pursued by monastics or by no. lay people and if there was a favoritism of one or the other. No, the bodhisattva path in Tibetan Buddhism, everyone takes the bodhisattva vow without okay. exception. Yeah. It would not be heard of. As I said earlier today, in Tibetan liturgies, you can't do refuge without doing bodhicitta. They always come together. So um, no matter whether you're lay, whether you're yogini, whether you're monastic, everybody takes the bodhisattva vow. And they take it, you know, take it as, I mean, refuge. Can lay people become Buddhas? Is that, you know... Oh, Can well, you go is, all the way, or is yeah, there some, some? We have to be a monastic at some point. No, no, you don't have yeah. to be a monastic. You know, now, like I said this morning, you never say of yourself that you're Buddha. You may say of your teacher 
You may mean it literally, you may mean it as an honorific. Um, but that kind of language, as I went through the liturgies this morning, you could see that the possibility of real awakening is taken seriously, though you wouldn't want to, you know, it would be arrogant to proclaim of yourself. As I tell students, of course. you know, I'm looking for a teacher. If your teacher claims to be enlightened, run the other way. <laughs> and I'm sure you say the same thing. A combo, and then I'll stop asking. Um, there always seems to be a little bit of a spin when people talk about Dzogchen, and I don't know what that is, but I don't know how to kind of frame it. And, but it's always interesting to me with the Dzogchen masters that I've read or looked at. And added to that, there's, within that, I read something called the part of the Mata'ati. I don't quite, do you know what I'm talk, referring mm, to? Ati, I know. And it really just really opened something up for me, and I'm still look, trying to discover that. And could talk about what that is. I don't know. It was just handed to me once, and I read it. And went, wow. Well, where did you read it? I can't. I don't think I. Someone ha- handed a Chongma Trumpa discussion. Oh or, yeah. Yeah, yeah. On the Matati, yeah. and I read it, and it was like, wow. This, yeah. And it sounded very Zen-like. And then people yeah, said, oh, yeah, uses yeah, this. yeah. That's about. It's that that way. It's very, you know, Mahamudra Mahamudra Zen Zogchen, They're very similar. And I think the the forest traditions are also in that same... They're all very similar because they all talk about the scene, only the, only the scene in the scene. There is no you here, there is no you there, and that is the end of suffering. They all talk that way. You know, when, for that you have you have to be able to somehow relax, and I think the word, I used to confuse the hell out of me. Why are these Dzogchen teachers always talking about relaxing? That's the right analogy, that you relax. That now we are bound. We are bound by all of our concepts and all of our confusion, and we're like, we're tied up in knots like this right now. And the analogy, it's used in text after text, is that what happens is that you have to come along and it's like a, by binding on a bale of hay. You have to snip the twine on the bale of hay. And it doesn't fall apart, but it gradually relaxes. And that's what happens when you can click into the state of mind of the, in the scene, only the scene. In the herd, only the herd. No, you here, no, you there, no, you in between. That is the end of su- That's relaxation, the end of suffering. That's, I mean, this could be Ati, this could be Mahamudra, it could be. When I read those, because I read texts in all those traditions, and they all have so much resonance to me and so much family resemblance. And, um, you know, the. The, the word, you know, the word relax is no longer confusing to me. It used to be very, very confusing to me. You, you know, it's like trying to relax. That's really trying to fall asleep or trying to relax. That's an oxymoron. I'm trying to relax into enlightenment. <laughs> so what happens? It's a mystery, you know, it's a mystery how the relaxation does happen. It's a mystery. I don't think anybody has ever described it. Everybody has ever 
Beyond in the scene, there is only the scene. There's no you here, no you there, or no you in between. Just that is the end of suffering. There was. I've heard, I've heard you mention many times all the texts that you've drawn from to pull this together. I feel like I have a sense of the Pali text. You know, with five minutes, I could lay out the structure of the Pali canon. I don't have any sense of the structure of, of Mahayana or Vajrayana texts. Is it even that organized? Do people agree on the structures of Oh, yeah, there's of them? lots. There's, there's Can lists. it be done in five minutes <laughs> to describe how it all fits <sighs> together? Well, I would, could recommend there are some very good books that survey the major Mahayana texts. But yeah, I could give you a five... The Prajna Paramita literature I could give you a five-minute survey of major Mahayana texts. But the book that that has a very good history is Paul Williams' book on Mahayana Buddhism. Because there's a lot of varieties of Mahayana. There are many, many varieties of Mahayana Buddhism. And there are many texts. I mean, a single Mahayana sutra can be almost as long as all the Nikayas put together. And they can be they can be fairly tedious reading, and I certainly have not read all of them, and I have no intention of reading all of them. But that book by Paul Williams is good, and um, what's his name? Sangharakshita, that odd person, Sangharakshita. Yeah, he's written a book that is, has a lot of useful information in it, which is a survey of Buddhist literature. I'm not, I'm not uh, online here, so I can't go online to find it, but I'm sure if you go to Amazon.com and look up Sangharakshita, you'll be able to find a book that is a, uh, a you know, some, what he calls, still calls Hinayana, unfortunately, still uses that term, but outlines of a lot of Mahayana texts. Um, you know, the Prajnaparamita texts are, of course, always said to be the first ones. Um, many books will have an outline somewhere at the end with classifications of texts. Um, the, um, one of the most famous Buddhist texts, of course, is Shantideva the Bodhicharyavatara, which a lot of people in many traditions use. Um, now, interestingly, uh, in, in Mahi, like in Tibet, I was shocked when Tenzin Pamo told me this. They don't tend to read the Mahayana sutras. They tend to read shastras. They tend to read academic summaries. And... Um, So Asanga is one of the big names in Mahayana thought. Nagarjuna, of course, the Mula Madhyamaka Karakas is a major text in Mahayana philosophy. I would teach that in the program on emptiness I've been talking about. I would teach that. Yeah, I've, I've read... 
Since I retired from the university, I've been able to do nothing except read and study what I wanted to, and that's what I've done. And that's, I think, if you want to be, uh, you know, that's a very good way to get to be, um, have, you know, to get to be a well-practiced Buddhist. Not to just study. I spend uh, at least a month every year at a meditation center. But uh, that's the way, you know, I mean, I don't think you can get to be a really uh, adept Buddhist without good study. I don't think it's just, um, you know, imitate. And I think you have to do your own homework to be a good Buddhist. I mean, you know, I don't think it's fast. I don't think it's easy. That's why most people don't go there. Yes. Um, I'm very interested in this, though I don't quite know where to go from here. And so you talked about um, how there's an initiation phase and then you find a guru. I'm nowhere near committing to that, but mm-hmm. I'd like to explore it more. Um, mm-hmm. But you said that, that you, um, there were pitfalls in, pract- in reading a book and then trying to practice, which I've mm-hmm. certainly experienced yeah. many times over and over, over again. again. <laughs> um, do you have a recommendation for how one could explore or play um, in this tradition to, to feel it out a bit, I guess? Well, I'm not so familiar with <laughs> Vajrayana groups and centers in the West Coast. Um, I know there's a small group of students of Kanda Rinpoche in the Bay Area, and she teaches somewhere out here in California every summer, a pretty advanced program. So, um, Yeah, I don't know Anam Tubton. I'd like to uh, get to know him better. Um, you know, uh, it's it's like it's in a question I can't answer easily. In part because I'm so unfamiliar with what's available on the West Coast. Looks I, like there are some people here who have some suggestions. Do you have? Well, and and I guess part of part of my question is also how to. I mean, you just talked about studying as well as practice, and so I can go out and and learn a lot, you know, independently. Mm-hmm. Um, but well, you you know, you're going to need to be able to do good shamatha vipassana anyway. So, doesn't matter where you learn that. Sure. You know, it doesn't matter those those practices are transferable no matter where you want to take them. Good mind training is always transferable, no matter where you're going to take it. If you've done a lot of utpati, that would be transferable to vipassana training. Uh, you know, don't get wedded to anything specific. Now, one thing I think I could recommend is that you could go online to the Lotus Garden website. That's my teacher's website. And it's lotusgardens.org. And there's a lot of information on the website. Her teaching schedule is on the website. There are things you can download. 
the um, email addresses of all the local study groups. So I think probably the uh, email address of the Bay Area study group would be on there. Uh, and you, I know her teaching schedule for where she's teaching in Northern California this summer is already up on her website. Uh, so that's one place to start. And, um, you know, I suggested this book, Mind at Ease. Reading Mind at Ease and following its exercises is safe. It's not going to mess you up and do weird things with your mind. And that's a good way to practice, is to, you know, read that book. And better if you have a reading companion you can read it with. You know, you could find some other people. Um, But, you know, you can, you can work with people here on basic, you know, your basic sitting awareness practice. And, you know, do, do long, take up, find opportunities to do long sits. That's one of the big struggles these days is to get people to do long practices. I'm always struggling with my students in Eau Claire to, look, you've got to do this more than... We've got to, you've, you know, yes, we have an hour and a half meeting once a week and we do serious reading and we do serious discussions and I know a lot so I can guide you, but that isn't enough. You need to, to go deeper, you need to do more. You need to do longer periods of sitting practice. You know, you need to, you know, and you're probably going to have to, given where I live, Eau Claire, you're probably going to have to spend time and money leaving Eau Claire to go do it. I didn't learn what I learned sitting in Eau Claire, believe me. I traveled a lot, and I've spent a lot of time and money pursuing Dharma. And that's what it takes, am I not right? It takes time and it takes money. It doesn't just, you know. There's a lot of things in life that are a lot easier to get, probably not worth as much. Um, this is, I guess, kind of following on her question. Is there a way for you to summarize in five minutes or something like the distillation of the teachings and how it might compare to Theravada Buddhism? I would say that <laughs> pretty much all day I've been demonstrating to you that there isn't that much difference. Yeah, that's what I, I didn't hear any, really. There's some differences. There's visualization. There's differences, there's differences of details. Theravadans yeah. don't use the complicated ritualistic form practices. That's the big difference. Yeah. There are also differences of teachings that I didn't go into. Theravadans sometimes do use the Bodhisattva vow, but it's not required, as it is in Vajrayana Buddhism. Uh, Vajrayana Buddhists have a lot more uh, Buddhas of other realms, Buddhas of other worlds, systems, than the Theravadans do. Theravadans do not have all these celestial Buddhas and Bodhisattvas popping out all over the place. Theravada is, is simpler. Now, is simpler better or worse? That, that, I mean, that's a stupid question. It's just different. And both can get you quite a ways, depending on how you work with them. But the, my emphasis, because I'm trying to 
undercut Buddhist sectarianism is that there's a lot that's not that different. And uh, the things that are different you can understand. You don't have to, you know, say, oh, that's stupid. You can understand their utility. You can respect them. You don't have to do them. Um, But at base, uh, like the reminders, we found that's all the same. Um, You know, we found a lot that is very consonant, which is why so many of the uh, teachers like Joseph Goldstein and other senior insight meditation teachers have studied so much with Tibetan teachers. I think most of them have studied more with Tibetan teachers than with Zen, though there's certainly the same crossover as available with Zen. It's just time for Buddhists to stop You know, as my teacher says sometimes, Buddhism is such a small religion. Why do we spend so much time fighting with each other? Which is true. It's a small religion. And it has a tremendous amount of variety. What? Judaism is even smaller. They fight more. Well, yeah, you you guys don't have some... Practices, though, that I think I, there's one more thing I want to talk about, and that is I said this morning, uh, Vajrayana Buddhism is famous for uh, these teachings. But the, the I, I said to you this morning, nothing is rejected; everything is used. It's it's transmuted rather than rejected. With rejection, you say that's bad. With transmutation, you say, this has some useful energy. We're going to unlock the useful energy and work with it. So uh, one of the most famous Mahayana instructions is not to fight with thoughts. Not a thought comes up and not to say, that's a bad thought. I shouldn't think that. There's no need to do that, to cascade ourselves for having undharmic thoughts, but instead to look directly into the thought, to it, it, it let it come up, get it clearly in focus. Don't act on it. We're not saying there's a great difference between thought coming up and one looks directly into it. The reason we act on our thoughts is because we don't know how to just stop and look directly into them. We have a thought. The second we have a thought, we think, I had a thought. That's obviously true. I have to take that thought seriously. That thought is knocking on my inside of my head saying, this is important. You can't get rid of me. I'm important. I'm here. I'm real. That's the way our thoughts work. One of the most liberating things you can ever come to in meditation is the point where you realize, just because I had a thought doesn't mean I need to take it seriously. It's just a thought. And the way we train in shamatha, that training is there from the beginning. Don't suppress thoughts and don't entertain them. We have a four-word slogan, don't lead, don't follow, which is what I always give as initial meditation instruction. Don't bring things up, and if they do come up, don't follow them. And if you need a reference point to help you with that, we can work with counting the breath. But it's don't bring things up. Meditation is not a problem-solving session. 
And if things do come up, don't run with them, just drop them. So we don't have to fight with thoughts. We can look directly into them. Um, they will subside. They won't last. They will be, they are self, word we use is self-liberated. It just the magic of this is what I'm thinking right now and not being afraid of it. It self-liberates on the spot. Well, that word self-liberation used to confuse me for a long time. But there are five, uh, in Vajrayana Buddhism, um, instead of just three root kleshas, there are five root kleshas in Vajrayana Buddhism. And each of them transmutes into an enlightened quality or a wisdom quality. So the five root kleshas give rise to or give birth to the five wisdom Buddhas. So your thoughts that are inappropriate are the potential for Buddhahood eventually. So how these five inappropriate thoughts transmute into the five wisdoms, it's very, very interesting and very provocative (coughs) material. Um, For me, the easiest one to work with is anger because that's the one I'm most prone to. I get so impatient with stupidity. Yes, that's what I'm going to do. Anger transmutes into clarity. People always tell me I'm a clear teacher. That's because I've worked with anger a lot. Anger always has wisdom in it. There's always something worthwhile about anger. What's not worthwhile about anger is lashing out with it, beating people up, becoming ideological. But there's something about anger that is intelligent. And so the, the anger transmutes into clarity. It's called mirror-like wisdom, which is to see everything clearly and not to distort it in any way. No distortion, like a mirror. Um, And when we work with the mandala, with the center and the four directions, that's in the east. And then that color is either white or blue. And then um, I'll go through the three root ones first. Uh, The anger is... The antidote is not to believe in your thoughts. The transmutation takes, takes its own time. It's not like some people have thought, I've had to correct some people, they think that they sit there trying to have angry thoughts because then they'll get to be clear. No, you don't have to do that. Um, but not rejecting the angry thoughts, noting them and sending on them on their way without acting on them, but not rejecting them. You know, I've told this story many times. I've written about it. I don't want to tell the story here today. But, you know, that's how I got over my feminist rage. It just, after a while, you start to realize this isn't doing me any good. This isn't working. It feels good for a while, but it doesn't do anything. There's nothing in it that works. 
So then uh, to go to the other, when we do them as the three root kleshas, let's do grasping or um, trishna, clinging next. This one's very interesting. It's also translated into English as passion. Passion is one of the common translations of, um, I don't even remember what the Pali word is, but passion or grasping or... um, We could, in a sense, neediness is something else. But it's really needing things, really wanting things. That very unpleasant feeling of really wanting things to be different. Is there anything that's more filled with suffering than wanting things to be different than they are? That's such an intense feeling of suffering. Well, that's that's in the twelve nidanas. I'm not. I'm not. But anyway, clinging or greed. Greed is another word that's used frequently. Greed uh, or desire or clinging or passion. It's very interesting when you put the words this way. That's the basis for compassion. The intense longing for things to be different than they are can become the root for compassion when you are no longer consumed by needing things to be different than they are. And you've liberated some energy. Now, in Mahayana Buddhism anyway, Vajrayana Buddhism is also always said that compassion is... If there is wisdom, compassion is, will arise, that it's impossible to imagine wisdom without compassion and compassion without wisdom. So then we're at the middle of the, the ignorance. Ignorance manifests as um, being very spacey and spaced out. That's one of the primary manifestations of ignorance, that you're very spaced out and spacey. And this is, by the way, with shamatha, here's something you really have to watch because it's very easy to think you're, you're having a very peaceful meditation, which is actually just very dull. It has no brightness to it at all. That's a very, very common. My slogan for that is that it's very easy to confuse spaciness with spaciousness. It's very, and that's a very important trap for people who are well along in meditation. Because you can stay for a long time thinking, I don't have any trouble meditating anymore. I can rest forever. I'm very content. And um, so the spaced out, dull quality of ignorance transmutes into spaciousness, or it's called all accommodating wisdom. Ignorance becomes all-accommodating wisdom, which means that things don't bother you. You can accommodate things without being bothered by them. doesn't mean they're right. You can accommodate them without being bothered by them. Then we have two more uh, root kleshas in Vajrayana Buddhism. We have um, pride, uh, which is also sometimes manifests as stinginess. Uh, very much, very self-centered, very stuffy. And that transmutes into generosity. 
And then the fifth one is um, my favorite word for I'm also very prone to the fifth one is um, paranoia. Paranoia or um, paranoia, a very critical mind, always finding faults with things. Um, ambition, tremendous ambition. People who are tremendously ambitious have a lot of this energy. Because people are so ambitious, they're also very disciplined and very efficient. Efficiency is what it transmutes into. You can get a lot done. Very disciplined, you can get a lot done. Discipline's no problem. So, you know, that's pretty easy to see when you're... When you're at one stage of it, you're very, uh, you're not only disciplined, you're ambitious and you're paranoid and you're clawing your way up the corporate ladder. And once you transmute it, um, you become efficient and uh, able to get a lot done without it being a lot of trouble. So how do we do that? Don't lead and don't follow. Just... Look at what comes up. Don't reject it. Don't accept it. Certainly don't believe in it. This is just a thought. No need to believe in it. So that's what I was going to teach today, and I think I've concluded what I wanted to teach. I can still take some more discussion as there is interest. Uh, we we uh, use the word rain for the kind of thought that you're talking about, don't lead, don't follow, which is, you know, to recognize, I mean, this all happens very quickly. So you recognize that you're thinking, you accept that you're thinking, you can investigate it in the sense of, this is just a thought, and non-attachment, you let it go. So that's, the, that's our don't lead, don't follow practice. Yeah, basic shamatha instruction, actually. That's Tilopa's meditation instruction, by the way. Don't lead, don't follow. I now use that as, uh, I've changed the way I give initial meditation instruction quite a bit in the last year or so. And I now do it in what I've been told by people who know it really is a Mahamudra style, with the don't lead, don't follow as the basic instruction. If you need to work with a reference point, work with a reference point. But don't regard... That isn't meditation. Working with a reference point isn't meditation. It's on the road to being a real meditator, which means you're somebody who can transmute negative thoughts into their antidotes and somebody who um, doesn't get caught up in ideology. Buddhism is so incredibly useful. If only more people would apply it more, the world could be so much more pleasant. And it's, it takes time, but it's not hard to... You don't have to spend all your time sitting on a cushion. You can apply meditation 24-7. You know, and that's when it actually means something, is when you're applying it 24-7. Trungpa Rinpoche used to say, I think this is such a wise saying, the only reason we sit down is to get up. 
so that when we have, after we've sat down, we get up. And um, by the way, there is one more thing I should say about this whole Vajrayana practice. Uh, at the end of the Sampanakrama section, after we've done whatever we're going to do of resting meditation, then we arise. Where is this? I can do it without notes. Then we arise again and go about our daily lives as the Yidam. We go about our daily lives as an already enlightened being. And so this is a very nice text that after you've dissolved everything and you've rested, and then it says, arising again in the form of Vajrasattva, that's the deity, the forehead is marked with Om, the throat with Ah, and the heart center with Hum. So your body, speech, and mind now arise in enlightened form and we go about the rest of our lives, our daily lives, not as an ordinary worldly person, but as an enlightened person. You know, and if we forget it, well, we forget it, but we can always remember again. Much better than just getting up from our hour of meditation in the morning. This is what I think is the big problem with one of my students. They put in their time, and then it's over. I've put in my time for the day. Uh, Done with that, thank God. Now I can go about my life. Now I can indulge in road rage, or I can, you know, I can go about my life again. That damn Dharma stuff is taken care of for the day. That stuff that interferes with my ordinary life so much. So how much better, you know, get up from your cushion and arise with the aspiration to to live one's life as a Buddhist or live one's life as a Buddha. Now, get up and re-arise as already enlightened or potentially enlightened being and have that aspiration throughout the day. I really think people who do things like set their watches so that every hour they get a mindfulness bell or something like that, I think those are really good practices. Bringing oneself back to the Bahia mind Whatever it takes, whatever the trigger would be to bring oneself back to that Bahia mind, you know, there are millions of triggers that could do that, use that. So that's Vajrayana. Yes. We'll dedicate the merit at the end. It's a, it's a question about something you said this morning, because years ago I, I read a biography of a Tibetan teacher, and it could have been Trungpa. We talked about his, his teacher um, was able to show him original mind, and then the practice was to, to get back to that. But you were saying that's a bunch of... That, that's a bunch of myth? Bunch of what? Myth? I don't know. Is this no, no, there are things that are done in Vajrayana Buddhism called pointing out the nature of mind. And they work, but they you have to be prepared for them properly. 
and then it's not magic in that after you know it's not like you're fixed after that you have to keep returning to that state of mind but no it's definitely something that's done in vajrayana buddhism there are various ways to do it and uh, if you're properly prepared they do work you do get clicked into that bahya state of mind of in the scene only the scene so that's the verbal cue clue i'm going to give you that's the only verbal clue i'm going to give you for what we're talking about and if that isn't good enough you're going to have to and even if it is good enough you're going to have to do your own homework into it but i think that's as trustworthy a verbal clue as to what we're talking about when we talk about the natural state of mind or what whatever whoever that was that the teacher the teacher can show it to you yeah the teacher can do it but only if you're properly prepared if you're not properly prepared it doesn't matter how good the teacher is or if you're um you know stubborn and resistant it doesn't matter how good the teacher is in other words it's not magic and that the teacher can't make it happen if you don't want it to happen i think that was pointed out in the book that yeah you have to be properly prepared then another i don't know if i read it in that book or someplace else that so once you see that state of mind you may forget about it but deep down you know it's there so you just work to go back most it's pretty hard to forget about it it's been compared to um suddenly finding yourself in a very familiar place that you've left a long time ago and haven't been back to for a long time but when you get back there it's suddenly oh you know and i think some of us have had that experience going home after a long time that you know the hills are still where they used to be <laughs> Yes, one more there's another over there. Oh, she's got a mic. Um is that non-duality? Yes. Okay. Yeah, non-duality is not oneness. A lot of people get that confused. They think non-duality is unity between this and that. Uh that's more conceptual. That's why I didn't delve into it. But yeah, that's non-duality. Um I've tried to stay away from the conceptual pretty much. And I think I did a reasonably good job of it. So should we dedicate the merit? Are we done for the day? By this merit having attained omniscience and defeated the enemy of wrongdoing, may I free all beings from the ocean of existence with its tumultuous waves of birth, old age, sickness and death, appearances, sounds and awareness, our deities, mantras in the sphere of dharmakaya. Uh, I forgot the rest of it. inseparable in the innermost essence of mind without being separated from the perfect guru through all of my lifetimes may i be inseparable from the innermost state of mind and now you can do your yes, So those of you who've practiced with uh Abhayagiri or Amavati will recognize this and I'm going to read it not chant it because I um but it it's it's written in a way to be chanted and I'm it's in a there's a Pali text from which this is derived but I'm just going to read the English translation that's written to be sound more musical so but that's not the right 
<clears throat> and it's interesting in relation to your chant. Through the goodness that arises from my practice, may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world, may the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly, indifferent, or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life, May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless. Through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing, may all desire and attachments quickly cease in all harmful states of mind. Until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth, may I have an upright mind. With mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor, may the forces of delusion not take hold or weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge, unsurpassed is the protection of the Dharma. The solitary Buddha is my noble lord. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dispelled. Well, one of the points of the whole day has been that there really is not... I mean, yes, there are things that are found in Vajrayana Buddhism that aren't very found in Theravada Buddhism. But what is similar is so profound. And, you know, um, if I can teach non-sectarianism and that we don't all have to be the same to be good people on a good path, then I've fulfilled what, then I've fulfilled my life's purpose. So I want to thank you for your attention today. Um, I was discouraged this morning because it seemed like it was going to be such a small crowd, but then it filled in. And people who were here were very... I mean, it's just, what I think, one of the most successful programs I've ever taught in terms of people being curious and receptive and asking a lot of questions and clearly being interested in what I was saying. And uh, it could just felt like I could see people taking in, oh, this is really helpful. I could, it seemed to me like people were just taking things in and saying, I'm going to use this, I'm going to remember this. And that's, of course, really important to a teacher. So I want to thank you for coming and for uh, inviting me back again after a year. I hope that in another year uh, I'll be here. I hope that in another year I can be here. Uh, and tomorrow morning I'm doing the Dharma talk on how to internalize the Dharma. I give a lot of suggestions on that today, but tomorrow presumably there will be a lot more people here to hear it. Thank you, Rita. Um, we just need a few volunteers to help put this room back together. Robert, did you want to say anything? Oh, I'm reminded. Steve Armstrong will be here uh, through Sati Center next Sunday afternoon. Um, and he'll be talking about personality types, something like that. Um, so we'll need... Five Buddha families type topic. We'll need some people to help tidy up the bathrooms and move chairs back and sweep maybe and vacuum okay 
take yeah, out trash. And I've still got a few books for sale here if anybody wants to pick one up today. <laughs>